This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It had been supposed by the pundits who haven't had much of a track record of late that at this point it would be Democrats having an all-out battle with one another with the moderates battling the progressives. The main event has turned out for now to be in the GOP, where Republicans who want to turn away from Trump after losing the White House and Senate are in a tough struggle with the party wing that, like GOP voters, is still intensely loyal to the former president and wants to stay the course. So what will happen? John Ferry is a political strategist, the former communications director for Congressman Tom DeLay and press secretary for then House Speaker Dennis Hastert. It's good to talk to you. John, the, obviously, the obvious place to begin is Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Georgia GOP congresswoman whose Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has called the kinds of beliefs she has a cancer on the party. We're talking about things like executing fellow members of Congress or espousal of wildfires being started by Jewish space lasers and all. McConnell obviously worried she's becoming the national face of the GOP instead of battling Biden's proposals. How can the party handle this? Well, you know, they've they tried to handle it during the primary and they they lost. She she won pretty overwhelmingly the primary and then she won her election. Um, I think the, the, the thing for Republicans is to not pour any more uh, gasoline on the fire. I don't think McConnell's comments were helpful in that matter. <laughs> I think they actually poured more gasoline on it. And, you know, I think that um, Taylor is is not going to go away uh, in the short term, but she's also not going to become the uh, face of the party. She's a freshman member of Congress and she's has really no no pull. Uh, and I don't think that she's going to be someone that that's necessarily going to be able to get anything legislatively through. Um, you know, my biggest worry is that Republicans make her a martyr uh, and that she's able to take that martyrdom, go to Donald Trump, amass a huge fortune uh, in campaign contributions and then run for Senate. Uh, that's what I that's that's my biggest worry about how the Republicans are handling this. Uh, you know, I think the Democrats, you know, really do want to make her the face of the party. Uh, and they they want to change the subject uh, from all the executive orders that Joe Biden's been doing, and and the fact as you pointed out, I mean Democrats have their own internal battles. 
I think in the larger context, what you have is the populist wings of both parties struggling with the establishment wings of both parties uh, for supremacy. Uh, for the Republicans, you know, Donald Trump represented the populist wing. Mitch McConnell obviously represents the more establishment wing. And, um, you know, the, 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 the problem is not necessarily for the Republicans where the Republican members are, it's where the Trump voters are. And the Trump voters make up a huge percentage of Republican voters, and they remain first fiercely loyal not only to what uh, President Trump his 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 being, but also you know what he stood for, which was a a really an attack on the establishment. And I think that that's what this uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene represents is an attack on the establishment. And Republicans have to be very careful in how they, how they handle her. They have to be careful because, yeah, there's this populist wing, which could be very big for Republicans. It has been very big for the Republicans. Obviously, you know, Trump won his initial race for president. And they even picked up some House seats in this last election, even while they were losing the White House and Senate. I guess, you know, part of the problem is, along with that populism, has come this other wing of people that, you know, subscribe to beliefs like politicians eating children in pizza joint basements and also the openly anti-Semitic groups like the Proud Boys and Taylor Greene's laser thing that might scare off Jewish voters who Trump made gains with, with his support of Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu. That could be kind of in the balance. How do you keep the populism but somehow lose the baggage that goes with the more radical beliefs? Well, I think the, the fact is that there's a split with the Jewish vote. The Jewish vote is uh, if you're if you're more orthodox, you're going to be voting Republican because uh, Republican Party is is much more uh, orthodox, you know, when it comes to religion. And if you're secular, you're going to vote for the Democrats. And uh, the Jewish vote has, you know, even with Trump, they went 75, 25 uh, for the Democrats. Um, you know, and I think that Republicans can make the case that figures like uh, Rashid Talab and and uh, Ilan Omar are uh, have uh, had anti-Semitic tropes of their own. And they've, they've gotten, you know, um, condemned for it by their own leaders. Um, listen, uh, what, what Taylor Green was said was weird. I mean, that's the only way you could say it. Uh, but it was also fully litigated in the primary and that her voters didn't care about that. And she won. And so there's this kind of sense of you're not only disenfranchising her, you're disenfranchising uh, her constituents. And I, I was against the idea of of sanctions against Omar, I'm against sanctions for for Green only because you know they they won and you have to represent the will of of their districts. Even though I completely disagree with what they've said and what they believe in. Well, it seems that maybe the House Democrats have, in a way, done Kevin McCarthy a solid here because he doesn't have to look at say the Republicans in her district and say, "Boy, the party did that to her." Well, I th I think that what what you've seen with the Democrats. Uh, is an overreach uh, ever since actually opening day of the Congress when they they really kind of decided that they're going to take away the minority's ability to um, offer amendments or offer uh, what they call a motion to recommit with instructions. Your listeners might not know the term motion to recommit, but it really is about the ability of the minority to present their views in, in the, 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 the committee process. And what that's, what that's doing is it's unifying the Republicans. The more the Democrats overreach, the more it will unify Republicans. And the Republican Party, just like the Democratic Party, they're both divided. They're both divided by these two wings. 
And the more unfairly that uh, the the leaders in the Democratic Party act towards the the, the Republicans, uh, the better off it is for the Republicans staying unified. And I I think that's a mistake. And I, uh, you know, I, I wrote a piece in the, the Hill the other day about uh, reconciliation. Using budget reconciliation is no way to get reconciliation for the country. And the point there was that the more you treat the Republicans unfairly using the process, the more the Republicans will get unified in the Congress. And um, that, that that might, uh, Democrats might rue the day that they've done that. Well, two things. First of all, do you think that uh, you could sell that to the Democrats right now after things like, you know, the Merrick Garland vote and other things where it seemed that the Republicans were doing that very thing to the Democrats? No, you, you can't. And I, I, I get it. I mean, I think that they are uh, very upset uh, and as well they should be. And I think a lot of Republicans were upset. I've talked to a lot of Republicans what happened on January 6th and they, they, everyone was shaken up on both sides of the aisle. But I think Democrats are more likely to blame Republicans uh, for what happened on January 6th. Um, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy had nothing to do with this. I, mean, I think that everybody was horrified by uh, the mobs that came into the Capitol and, and destroyed public property. Um, I think the Democrats are, are very upset about that. I think Democrats, you know, really don't like Republicans. They don't really trust Republicans. I think they're fearful of Republicans. Uh, I think they fear for their personal safety, which is why you, you have this huge fence around the Capitol. But you also have uh, uh, the new um, magnometers at, uh, right outside the chamber of the House because they don't, they're afraid that Republicans will bring in guns to the, the House chamber and use them on them. So there's this kind of just palpable sense of fear and loathing between the two parties, and that makes it awfully difficult to get any kind of legislative compromise. John, is it just the Democrats who are scared of that? Because the crowds that were pushing into the Capitol were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Uh, you know, I think that Republicans uh, on that day were were very upset. I think that Mitch McConnell was very upset. I think that they were angry uh, that uh, at the breach of security. Uh, I don't think they looked at that necessarily as a I mean, they're coming from both sides. They were coming from all political figures. I don't think they saw that as a uh, they weren't blaming Democrats for it. They weren't some were blaming Trump and maybe rightfully so. Um, but the, the, the fact is, is that, you know, they, they weren't seeing this as a way to get get back at the Democrats. They they were generally fearful. Uh, but ever since that uh, January 6th event, the Democrats blame Republicans. They fear Republicans. And um, they're using this as a way to bludgeon Republicans, and Republicans are, are reacting negatively. To John that. Perry is a political strategist, former communications director for Congressman Tom DeLay, and press secretary for then House Speaker Dennis Hastert. And as he pointed out, writes many columns for The Hill, where you can check up on what he's doing. Uh, pleasure, John. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gil. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There is plenty of news about COVID. Some of it is good. We have vaccines, though we're having trouble actually getting it to people in some parts of the country. And there has been a bit of a fall off in cases in the last week. It's still far too high, but there are signs that the closings and what vaccine there is may be helping. 
But we've had bad news as well. New variants of the virus that seem more contagious, which brings us a lot of questions. Will this recent good trend in cases reverse? Will the vaccines work as well in these variants as they have in the original SARS-CoV-2? Will the treatments for people who develop COVID work as well with these variants? And how many more variants will there be? And does this mean whatever we will do, this thing's going to be with us as far into the future as we can see? That's all just for starters, so let's actually start. Uh, Dr. Brianne Barker is with us. She earned her Ph.D. in immunology from Harvard University, now a Drew University on the faculty there, where she's been studying these questions deeply as a viral immunologist. Good to have you with us. How are you? I'm all right. Great to be here. Good, good. And as we've been saying for a little more than a year now, that is not just a polite question these days. Let me go back first to where the heck this thing came from. Uh, And I don't even mean place. From what I've seen, this SARS-CoV-2 virus that we've been battling looks a lot like the original SARS virus, that as bad as that was, wasn't anything near as contagious as this. Is this virus itself, the one that we've been dealing with for a year, kind of a worse variant of that first SARS virus? Is this just kind of a continuation itself? Well, they are relatives of one another. And in evolutionary terms, we think that they came from the same um, origin about maybe 50 years ago. Um, They're relatively close relatives. They both are originating from coronaviruses that came out of bats um, in a particular area of China. And it seems like there are a lot of coronaviruses out there in bats that are undescribed. Um, And so this is just another example of one making its way into the human population. Okay, so now we're dealing with this variant, which seems as if, from the predictions I'm looking at now, will actually overtake the original SARS-CoV-2 probably by the end of March. That's how contagious this variant is. Uh, Brings up a lot of questions, one of which is, will the vaccines that we have now work as well on this variant as it they seem to on the original SARS-CoV-2? So from the data that we've seen thus far, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines will uh, protect against the new variants, uh, particularly when people get two doses of those vaccines and have high levels of antibodies. There has been a little bit of a question about whether the antibody levels at one dose are enough, but with two doses, we still should see some protection. Uh, We think that those antibody levels are just so high that even if the variants are able to avoid the antibody response a bit, the antibody response is so high that it doesn't really matter if you lower it a tiny bit. Okay. Now, the two vaccines you mentioned, the Moderna and the Pfizer, are the mRNA vaccines. We now have with Johnson & Johnson some of the other vaccines, kind of more classic, you know, live virus vaccines coming out. Will they work as well on a variant, or will they have to change what they're based on? So, It's a little bit of a difficult comparison um, with some of those vaccines. For example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine only involves one shot. um, And so it's hard to make that comparison with the Pfizer and Moderna two shots. The data that has come out thus far says that the Johnson & Johnson and Novavax vaccines don't work quite as well against the variants. And perhaps we will have to um, modify those vaccines a little bit. All in all, though, the thing that we need to remember is the reason why we see variants of these viruses is because RNA viruses like coronaviruses 
make variants when they reproduce. Um, they are not very good at proofreading and make some mistakes when they reproduce. If we stop those viruses from reproducing, then we stop the production of new variants and we stop this process in its tracks. Um, and so part of this question is also going to depend a little bit on how quickly we sort of stop those variants from uh, taking over. Yeah, I don't know if this actually works for you as an actual uh, viral immunologist, but the way I've described it to uh, journalist friends about this kind of reproduction is, you know, you're you're putting something in a copying machine and 50 copies come out exactly the same. And then you get that one copy, it's a little blurred, it's it's a little different, and it's almost like instead of just being something you throw out, that one that's just a slightly different copy becomes an actual variant of, of the virus. Is that some, yeah. Does that kind of work? Yeah, that kind of works. Uh, I think the one piece I would add to that is that you probably are getting a few variants. You're probably getting um, some uh, mistakes in your copy machine process, but some of them may break the copier and you'll actually never see the weird copy come out. Um, only some small percentage will actually um, result in you having a weird copy. Um, it may get thrown away and you may never see it again. It may just be a huh. Or perhaps you'll take a look at it and you'll say, wow, I like this version of the print better. Um, and it will sort of be kept uh, for a longer time. All right. Now, earlier on, you mentioned that, you know, we need two shots to get the actual effect. And as you know, there's all kinds of ideas running around now trying to get more people vaccinated. Um, some people are saying give fewer second shots so more people can get their first. In fact, uh, Minnesota epidemiologist Michael Osterholm said this week that uh, he's going to actually ask federal health officials to re-examine the vaccine data with an eye toward delaying that second dose so more people can get their first shots. And then some people are saying, hey, if some people got their first shot, but there's, and let's say it's Moderna and there's no Moderna around right away for the second shot, well, maybe you can give them a Pfizer for a second shot. Are, are any of these good ideas since these are things I take it that haven't really been tested? Um, so if you look at the data from the Pfizer and Moderna phase one and phase two trials, it's very clear that the second dose really influences the uh, size of the immune response. Um, we haven't got a lot of data to test whether or not those there's a huge difference with one dose and two doses in terms of protection. But I tend to fall on the side of we've done good testing on two doses. And so we should stick with that until we have uh, data telling us whether one dose is going to be sufficient. I'm really impressed by how much the immune responses increased uh, in some of the earlier phase data. Um, as for whether you could get one shot of Moderna and one shot of Pfizer, from what I've seen, the two are rather similar, are pretty similar, if not identical, in terms of their mRNA. And so theoretically, it should work. But again, I'd love to see some data uh, before I tell people that that is going to work for them. How good do you think we have been, and by we, I mean uh, everybody from journalists to politicians, scientists, at getting information to people in a way they understand. I mean, one thing that happened this past week is the New York Times had a headline, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine drastically cuts transmission study finds. 
And then a few hours later, uh, they said, oh, uh, whoops. Okay, so that was kind of from a press release. But when we actually look at the data, it, that's not actually a proven thing. How good a job are we at getting things out to people so they're sure of what's going on and they have some faith in what they're actually getting? I think that we're really struggling with that, especially the second part that you mentioned about making sure that people have some faith in what they're actually getting. Um while we sometimes are getting some good information out there, we're not getting much information out about the process of how scientists figure things out. And as a result, when the um, recommendations change, people don't understand why. And I think that we need to get a little bit of a better understanding in the general public of how we are coming to some of the conclusions we're coming to, how we're actually able to make some of these statements so that people can understand the process and see how we are getting uh, to this information as scientists so they can have a little bit more faith in it. Yeah, one of the things I think that people have to understand is that this is really science on the run. Just the fact we have vaccines developed in this short a time, I mean, I have talked in the last year to people who are actually working on RNA vaccines for like all of their actual scientific career, you know, something like 30 years. So this has been just like kind of like, wow, we actually got to this. But this is really, you know, science in the making. It's not like, oh, all of these questions are settled and we know it. We're learning as we go. Right. Absolutely. I think that some people uh, think about their science education and remember getting a bunch of facts out of textbooks that they had to memorize. Um, the facts about SARS-CoV-2 are not found in any textbooks. They are things we are still discovering and working out. And so sometimes people will have questions that the scientists are still trying to find answers to. I am frequently impressed with just how quickly we have uh, come up with so many treatments, so many vaccines, and so many answers about this virus. And it is astonishing. Um, it is certainly the fastest we have done so in many different ways. And I think that we we should appreciate the great job that science has done, but also make sure that everyone understands that, yes, we are doing this sort of in real time. You're getting to watch scientists work in real time and find out the information that might be uh, committed to a textbook later on. I've got a few more questions for for people who are trying to figure out how to deal with this in their daily lives. So we'll come back with a little bit more with Dr. Brianne Barker right after this brief break. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with Dr. Brianne Barker. Dr. Barker earned her Ph.D. in immunology from Harvard. She's now in the biology faculty at Drew University, where she's been studying all these questions about COVID as a viral immunologist. One of the things, we've, we've talked about the vaccines. One, one of the things that uh, I know a lot of people have been wondering about are the treatments for people who actually develop COVID. From what I've been reading, it seems there's a little more concern about whether the variants will be a problem for that, the people who get COVID and might be dealing with a slightly different virus than even dealing with the vaccines. Do we know much about any of that yet? Um, We don't know quite as much, but the idea with the vaccines is that we are giving people um, the instructions to make one whole virus protein. And it's actually a pretty large virus protein. It contains many targets for antibodies. And so you have many antibodies fighting against the virus there. One of the big treatments that is used is one purified antibody. And so there's only one target on the virus that antibody is able to bind. Um, and so you're kind of putting a lot of eggs in the basket of that one target. If we see uh, mutations in that particular spot, then yes, those treatments are going to have reduced efficacy. And that does look like it may be the case with some treatments. There are other treatments that are not sort of as specific to the virus in terms of being an antibody against part of the virus. Those treatments might change your immune response or sort of alleviate symptoms, and those wouldn't be affected. But the antibody treatment certainly would. After vaccination, and this may be something that we just don't know yet, because even though it seems like it's been going on forever, we're really only a little bit more than a year into this. So after vaccination, can I toss my mask or can I asymptomatically still give people the virus even though I've been vaccinated? So those experiments are currently ongoing. There is a small amount of data on them, and the data indicates that you are protected some from spreading asymptomatically, but not completely. And so someday when I get fully vaccinated, I do not plan to throw away my mask. I plan to make sure that I am still protecting my students and colleagues and community members and friends and family all around me by continuing to wear my mask until community spread is lower. Because it, we do think that there may be some uh, level of asymptomatic spread still possible. Okay. This thing has been a trickster from the first. It's not technically alive, even though we kind of referred to it that way. But it seems to be finding a way to stay around. How does that work? Um, you know, I think that the the biggest reason why it works is because it still has opportunities to spread from person to person. If there was absolutely no opportunity for this virus to spread from person to person, then we wouldn't see uh, the same kind of of issue. And so um, because it is so good at spreading, it's so hardy at spreading from person to person, it's able to persist um, unless we do something to really stop that spread. We've seen problems in people we're calling long haulers. They didn't die from COVID but they're not over it. Their body has been affected in ways. We've even seen a 14% rise in diabetes among many people who survive COVID. This is not apparently one of those, hey, I didn't die, so I'm fine kind of diseases. Yeah, exactly. So there have been a number of different uh, issues with people's hearts um, or other cardiac problems in survivors of SARS-CoV-2. There have been some neurological problems um, and some brain fog and this new report about diabetes. It does look like there are a number of long-term manifestations of this. um, And I would be particularly worried about what we might see 
in the future with survivors of this disease. And that's why we really want to make sure that we are protecting ourselves and not getting it in the first place. One of the last questions, uh, teachers are, is, is a big battle. In fact, in San Francisco, the city of San Francisco is suing the Board of Education in San Francisco because the city wants the schools to open. The Board of Education says the teachers don't think it's safe. Um, what do we know about kids who don't seem to, for the most part, you know, actually develop the disease in their ability to spread it? Do the teachers really have something to worry about? So we can certainly see plenty of situations where kids are able to spread the virus, um, even though they're asymptomatic. There have been some good examples of schools being open and having lower levels of spread than we see in the community. But that is really only seen when the schools are taking very good precautions in terms of limiting the number of students in a classroom and having lots of hand washing and hand sanitizing and having very strict mask rules and having a lot of precautions in place that are very expensive and that many schools can't necessarily pull off. Um, and so uh, those teachers um, might have uh, a bit of a good point here in that um, their particular school may not be living up to the standard of situations where we haven't seen school spread. Um, you know, what's going on with their ventilation? What's going on with all of their other practices that are happening in the school? A lot to think about and a lot of information developing each and every week. Dr. Brian Barker is on the biology faculty at Drew University as a viral immunologist and obviously has been following this closely. And I thank you so much for sharing what we know about it with us. Thank you very much. No problem. Happy to talk with you. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump begins next week, and though there may be plenty of drama, we are already pretty sure how it ends with Republicans saying the whole thing is unconstitutional anyway. But is it? And how will this go? Is this something the Founding Fathers intended? Were the Founding Fathers even sure of what this process would become? a process that by the time it was first used for President Andrew Johnson, every signer of the Constitution was long dead, the last of them being James Madison in 1836. So what do we know about this process and this post-presidency trial? Frank Bowman is professor of law at the University of Missouri, the expert on impeachment and the recent author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment in the Age of Trump. Good to have you with us. And let's start with what many people, especially Republicans, are citing as gospel, that an impeachment trial after a president is out of office is unconstitutional. What's the story? It's a very, very, very thin argument. Uh, it's based on the notion that because the Constitution requires in one of its clauses that someone who is tried and convicted uh, must be a civil officer, of course, in the first place, but if tried and convicted must be uh, removed from office. The theory is that because uh, there is a mandatory penalty of removal, that must mean that anybody who can't be removed at the time of conviction, because in this case he's left office, isn't subject to jurisdiction by the Senate in the first place. So I, I think the argument is, 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 is thin on its face. I think it's, uh, it's not supported by any uh, proper understanding what the framers were up to. To to use, a, I think, a really excellent phrase that's in the House manager's brief on the case, 
Uh, there's no such thing as a January exception to the impeachment clause, meaning that uh, if you're a dangerous president, if you're a demagogue, if you're a person who's essentially attacking democracy, um, you don't get to escape by simply reserving all of your really worst behavior until the end of your term at a point when it becomes difficult uh, to jam through uh, a trial before your term expires. Um, so I think it's a very weak argument. So taking a look at the brief that was filed by the defense for the president, they're obviously going to stay with this. This is like their main argument. They're ignoring a lot of the evidence that the president contributed in some way to the insurrection and kind of sticking with this for the most part without presenting evidence saying the prosecution has to prove its case. Thing is, we're already looking at the Republican vote, which is probably not going to be in favor of a conviction, no matter what the evidence is anyway. So even if claiming an ex-president under impeachment is unconstitutional, even if that is a legal fiction, it's not like this is an issue that can be appealed to a higher court, is it? That's quite right. Um, uh, it's, I suppose, theoretically possible under some really extraordinarily and ex extraordinary and extreme circumstances that some court might consider um, some impeachment case, but certainly not this one and not under these circumstances. Essentially, whatever the Senate, the Senate decides to do, whether they decide to, to vote to convict and disqualify Trump or if they decide not to, will be the end of the question. No court is really going to uh, try to intervene in, in that circumstance. So if this uh, trial goes in favor of the former president, they're not going to get to that second vote in terms of preventing him from holding future office. So let me ask you a question. It's not strictly an impeachment question, but still a legal question that I'm sure you've considered. If the Democrats don't want to drop this after expectedly losing this trial, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment aimed, is aimed at preventing people from holding federal office if they are deemed to have, and I'm quoting, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. Could the House and Senate use that alone to keep him from running in 2024? And possibly, I guess, Donald Trump Jr. as well, who spoke January 6th in even more fiery terms than his father. Possible, but difficult. The, the thing about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is that it's not self-executing. Um, you know, it says uh, what you say it says, but it doesn't provide any automatic mechanism for determining who actually engaged in uh, the insurrection that would then bar you from office. Uh, back when the 14th Amendment was passed, which is after, of course, the Civil War, uh, Congress passed statutory provisions that provided mechanisms for determining who was subject to its, its exclusions. But unfortunately, it doesn't appear that, you know, that old 18th, 19th century statute uh, is any longer of any use. So essentially what would have to happen here is, I think, Congress would have to pass a bill that sets up some kind of mechanism for determining who in the modern era has actually engaged in insurrection, uh, and then uh, determining what the whether there's, that person shall be barred. Uh, it can be done, uh, in theory. There are, in fact, uh, people in Congress who are considering this very idea. 
but it would require separate legislation. Final question. A book on impeachment would not have been a big seller probably 30 years ago. It was that, oh, that thing that happened once, it had to do with the Civil War, it's ages ago. Boy, it's not something we expect to see in our lifetime. We went the first 222 years of this nation's history with just one impeachment. In the last 22, we've had three. What does that say about government and what's happening to the body politic in the United States? Well, I often get asked that question, and I think it's a little bit of a, uh, I think it's a little bit, a little bit misleading. We've had, uh, really, the impeachment mechanism has actually been used four times um, since the 1970s. Uh, it was used really successfully against Richard Nixon, even though there was not a formal impeachment. He resigned under the shadow of what was going to be a successful impeachment. In that sense, the impeachment mechanism and its availability did exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, It produced the exclusion of uh, a a dangerously flawed and indeed criminal president from office. Um, The use of it against President Clinton, I think, is obviously a good deal more problematic. Um, uh, And I think probably signaled the beginning of the era in, in which we now find ourselves, in which uh, partisan political warfare is a good deal more hard-edged and perhaps a little less tethered to facts and to serious considerations of government. Um, that, I think, is troubling because the framers, when they invented impeachment, certainly recognized that it would be a political process. It was designed to be. They certainly recognized that it would, that it would always be Um, to some degree influenced by the partisan politics of the moment. But I think they hoped and expected that the the political class at large, even those who were generally associated with or affiliated with the president, would have uh, sufficient um, loyalty to the notion of American democracy, sufficient loyalty to the institution of Congress in which they were serving, that they'd be able to make uh, reasonable judgments. Frank Boma is professor of law at the University of Missouri, an expert on impeachment, recent author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment in the Age of Trump. Frank, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. You might think if any food had looked that closely for its ingredients, it would be baby food. Well, think again. Here's CBS News Chief Investigative Consumer Reporter Anna Werner. Carrie Kerner of Westport, Connecticut, had her first child, Chloe, a year ago. And ever since, she's been paying close attention to what's in Chloe's baby food. I just looked for the ingredients. If there was any added preservatives or any sweeteners or added sugars, I wouldn't buy it. So I basically just wanted to get organic. But one thing she says she and her husband, Brian, who is a doctor, never worried about was whether the baby food contained toxic metals. That's the least thing a mother wants to think about. You're already worrying about choking and about what goes into these foods. Um, that, that's very concerning as a new mom. Yet a new congressional subcommittee investigation finds major concerns over the presence of metals in baby food. The report says baby foods are tainted with dangerous levels of toxic heavy metals, including arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury. Researchers say developing brains of babies and young children are uniquely vulnerable to toxic chemicals, which can cause permanent brain injury, with risks for lowering IQ, problems in school, even criminal behavior later in life. And that's why Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy told us that getting heavy metals out of food sold for infants is critical. I don't know a mom or dad that wants neurotoxins in their baby's foods. Investigators asked seven U.S. baby food manufacturers to provide internal documents and test results. Of the four that did, all showed the presence of lead, arsenic, and cadmium in their own test results at levels the report says eclipse maximum levels set for other products. For example, the report says compared to the levels allowed by the FDA in bottled water, the results were up to 91 times the arsenic level, up to 69 times the cadmium level, and up to 177 times the lead level. We asked all seven companies for comment. Those who responded said they are committed to safety. All told us they either comply with government standards, have developed their own internal quality and testing standards, or both. And several said they are part of the Baby Food Council, a group formed with the goal of voluntarily reducing heavy metals in baby foods. But the problem is not new. Consumer Reports did its own spot check testing of 50 nationally distributed baby foods in 2018, finding every product had measurable levels of at least one of three heavy metals. Two-thirds had worrisome levels of at least one heavy metal. Consumer Reports' James Dickerson says parents should not panic but take steps. That's the real big issue. You want to minimize the risk. You can't eliminate it entirely, but you can minimize it. And there are steps that we can take. He tells parents to limit rice and sweet potato products, which tend to absorb more pollutants because of the way they're grown. To avoid snacks like crackers and puffs, which in CR's investigation had higher levels of heavy metals. And to vary their child's diet. And Congressman Krishnamurthy believes that voluntary industry efforts aren't enough. He plans legislation to increase FDA oversight. So now we need the FDA to step into the breach and do what I think the American people believe it is, is its job to do, which is to make sure that the food that their babies consume is safe. This has been America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand-new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. 
Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devi Adaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.